every vote symbolizes a hope. That's what voting means to this episode's guest. And let me just say, it may be a bit of a tearjerker if you're anything like me, who has the deepest respect and admiration for election officials. We hear from Dustin Zarni, an election professional in Onondaga County, New York, who has worn quite a few hats during his life in elections. Dustin has been the Democratic Election Commissioner of Onondaga County since 2013 and has been involved in local politics as an activist and campaign operative for 30 years. And since 2017, he has also taken on the role as the Democratic Caucus Chair of the New York State Elections Commissioner Association. Though we do not yet have financial sponsors, this is your regular reminder that we here at What Voting Means to Me are quite literally supported by democracy. Thank you, democracy, for making this podcast possible. Now, sit back, relax, and please enjoy this episode of What Voting Means to Me. So good. It's so lovely to meet you in this digital space. I'm so grateful that you reached out and that we're taking the time to talk. And I will start as I always do by asking you your first memory of living in a democracy. That was the the moment that stands out for you. If there's any one in particular, there can be more than one. No, well, I mean, I do remember my first voting experience. It's pretty formative in my mind. It was 1980. Okay. Um, I was eight years old. It was the Carter-Reagan election. And uh, it was the first time I remember my parents bringing me to a polling place and voting on um, uh, on election day. My parents uh, were Democrats. But my mom still is. My dad has transitioned like so many older men into a more conservative space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But back then, they were both uh, union Democrats, and they were um, voting for Jimmy Carter and, they, and President Carter, and they told me why. And they told me why they were, you know, scared of a Reagan win. Uh, and I remember that we went up to the old Eastwood High School in Syracuse, New York. It's now no longer a high school. It's a uh, senior living center, okay. <laughs> but uh, uh, but it, it was a high school back then, and we went into the polling place. I remember going behind the old lever machines that we had in New York that we've had that we just got rid of in 2007. But these are these machines that have been around since the 40s, where yeah. you would have that lever that you would pull, and the curtain would go behind you, and you would click on the mechanical levers, and choose your candidate. So my, my mom brought me behind the curtain with her and I, I heard the chunk of the lever. <laughs> and, you know, and it was like such um, a, you know, vivid memory uh, for me. And it was a 
pretty nice day for Syracuse in November. <laughs> and, um, and so, so we walked home. I stayed up a little bit that night, past my bedtime to wait for the election results. And we had just gotten cable. Yeah. You know, right? Cable yeah. was just starting to become a thing. I remember my parents being disappointed because mm. it was a pretty big landslide for a, in, in the 80s. So, you know, yeah. it was a, and it was an early call that night. <laughs> it was not like, you know, like now that we've gotten used to these two-day marathon events, uh, you know, it was not that. that yeah. Bad. And, um, but I also remember, you know, you know, and I was eight, so I was scared. Right. I was scared. You know, my parents wanted an outcome that didn't happen. Yeah. And and I didn't realize at that point that, you know, that it, it wasn't that big of a deal to lose an election. Or at least it wasn't back then. And uh, uh, and, and my parents didn't say like, you know, they were disappointed, but, you know, that American democracy would go on. And I learned that a president had a, it wasn't, he wasn't elected for life. It was like, you know, four more years, we'll have another election, eight more years. He's definitely leaving office. You know, uh, it's uh, something that, you know, I started to really learn about American democracy Mm. at that point beyond just the the school things that we learn in our formative years. And I was hooked right from that moment. Uh, I I became a, a politics guy. I followed elections. I had no idea that there were local elections as well as, you know, I know. For, for several <laughs> years. And then when I found that out, I was like, oh, wow, there's even more things to talk about. And, uh, you know, what con- Congress uh, people were, what senators were, how that affected the local stuff. And all throughout high school, um, I was really interested in the topic. Um, and then, uh, I actually had a kid in high school. Oh I was my a senior gosh. in high school. And I had my daughter who I ended up raising by myself. Mm. And for the first several years of, of that experience, I, I kind of got away from politics, although I was following it, but I wasn't volunteering. I wasn't going to college. I wasn't doing, yeah. you know, because I was working two or three jobs. Sure, and yeah. A very good friend of mine came to visit me. I had moved down to Florida uh, and a very good friend of mine came to visit me and kind of gave me a wake up and said, hey, you always talk about politics. You, you always say, you know, you're, you, you have these impassioned pleas, but, you know, what are you doing? You're working as a short order cook mm. uh, at the VA. I mean, well, you're not even volunteering. Why don't you go out and mm-hmm. try following your passion? And I did. Uh, it was another traumatic election it was 1994 oh <laughs> and, uh, uh, yes. that was the election you know I'm a, I was a Democrat I knew I was a Democrat I I went and um, worked in the local Democratic Party in Florida and watched the Republicans rout us all over the country oh uh, yeah in, in locally and uh, I and then I realized at that point I realized you know what it's too important got to stay in to do this. I um, eventually moved back up to New York um, and I used politics as a, almost as a, a mentorship you know, mm. type thing where I, um, and where I could work on campaigns, learn things, volunteer, of course, almost always uh, yeah. learn things, gra- you know, gradually learn more and more about campaigns, more and more about elections 
Um, and I always tended to gravitate toward the GOTV side of mm. the campaign. I, I get out the vote for those who don't know. Yes, um, so we it, should it, clarify, I suppose. Yeah, for the the non-election yeah, some nerds. Acronyms, uh, but um, and because I hated fundraising, uh, I hated. Um, I, I didn't hate, but I didn't really like messaging or campaign ads or stuff. I wanted to focus on getting people to the polls, making it easier for people to get to the polls. And then um, as I grew in the party, I became uh, Syracuse Syrac City Chair, as well as um, uh, 17th Ward Chair, which is a very liberal uh, area of the city of Syracuse and one of the powerhouse uh, in, in, the, in the county for democratic politics uh i ended up becoming the go-to guy for the local party to deal with the board of elections um and work on things like absentee ballot counting mm. and all of this other stuff mm -hmm. and then when there became an opening for the elections commissioner and in new york we have what are called bipartisan elections commissions mm -hmm. um there's one democrat one republican and they're elected by the local party and then uh, nominated by the county legislature. Mm -hmm. um, so we had an election for the next elections commissioner. And um, I, uh, I ran. Uh, I ran against the minority leader of the county legislature, which was um, daunting. Mm -hmm. But I won. Uh, and I won because I, I put forward a vision of a, a younger commissioner. This is, it's weird to say I'm 49, but I, I'm, I'm, I, at the time I was 40 and I was the youngest commissioner uh, ever in Onondaga County oh, wow. history. Uh, and, uh, um, and, it, and it's someone who would be in the job for a long time, not just be there for a short time and, and get a pension and be an activist commissioner and mm. push for, um, you know, voting reforms uh, that, Many people don't know New York is actually pretty regressive in, its, in our voting I know. system. And, I know. And, and, and so and it's been exciting over the last few years because we've actually started to change that, adding in early voting, yep. ad adding in uh, a lot of other reforms um, that have made it easier. So, And then several years into my elections commissioner, um, I, was, I, I started working on legislation. I've been working with the New York State Legislature on behalf of the New York State Elections Commissioner Association. Mm. And then in 2017, the caucus chair retired for the Democratic caucus, and I was asked by my fellow commissioners to assume that role. And it's been, that's how I got to where I'm at. That's amazing. That's an incredible thread that you just drew for all of us from that moment at eight years old to where you are now. I mean, I guess it's easy to look back on, on the trajectory of one's life in a democracy and draw a common thread in some respects. But at the same time, it, it seems like you've done so much with a lot of intention and intent to stay continually engaged in politics. It, it definitely wasn't a plan from the start. It was never one of those things where, like, I knew at eight years old I wanted to be an elections commissioner. Yeah. But, um... You know, I, I guess, you know, my unofficial model is that I'm too stubborn to quit and too stupid to know when I should. So, you know, I, I, anytime I got into a campaign that I lost, I tried to take valuable lessons from and move to the next campaign. Yeah. I, I've, I've been on way more, you know, Onondaga County is kind of a conservative county, although mm -hmm. right now we're plurality Democrat. And so many of the races outside the city of Syracuse tend to be races that are 
we have less of a chance of winning. Sure. And, uh, so and it's easy to bandwagon campaign to get on ones that win, but the losing campaigns is where you learn more. And yeah. so every time I got into one of those, I tried to learn something from it <clears throat> and then take that to the next campaign and just grow uh, as an activist. I, I tried to be an activist first. Yeah. And, and then a party person second and then whatever role, other role I have third. And the commissioner role has supplanted the party role, even though I still have a D next to my name. Um, and and I, I'm involved in, with the bipartisan model, we're supposed to be involved mm-hmm. with our parties, but I've ruled against my party several times. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and they just have to trust that I'm, I'm right on the law. Yeah. And I, I, that, that brings me to a follow-up question I wanted to ask you about if there was something in particular about the commissioner role where you are really more so administering elections versus engaging in that party role. Yes, New York is a state that has the bipartisan model, Democratic and Republican commissioners, but was there something specifically about knowing the law, implementing the law, and administering elections that called to you when you saw this opening for this position? 95% of my job is dealing with the public okay. in one way or, 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 or another and dealing with the public in a, in a nonpartisan way. Yeah. Uh, I love determining poll sites. I love uh, shaping where people vote. Mm. Um, early voting has really even made that even more of a, a you know a unique wrinkle, but you know it, it all comes back down to trying to make it easier for people to vote. Mm-hmm. And if and, and so the things that really make it easy for people to vote is access to polling places, whether early voting or on election day. Mm-hmm. Access to systems of voting like absentee balloting, you know, access to information. Um, you know, that's a that's been a big thing that I I've tried to you know deal with with the board of elections and our website and, and putting more and more information mm-hmm. because data is data it's not partisan it's just there we know who the registered registered numbers are we know what the um election results were that's data that people can see uh, i feel like you know they shouldn't have to wait for the board of elections to open at 8 30 you know they should be able to just go to our website and it saves a phone call to our office too so that's good too but yeah uh, and then, of course, that leads to, you know, my last three years, I've um, dealt with redistricting, mm-hmm. uh, getting towards the census and, and having districts that are um, make sense mm-hmm. to the public. So mm-hmm. they know who their representatives are and they know how to address their grievances and they know, you know, and having more competitive elections. That's been my uh, Don Quixote uh, mission over the last three years in Syracuse and Onondaga County. Uh, Something you said a couple minutes ago, I wanted to circle back around to about how so much of your job is interacting with the public and a key component of that is information and providing them with information. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you and your office do to educate voters. Yeah. So, our, our philosophy in Onondaga County, uh, and both my Republican commissioners that have served with me and myself have, have had this philosophy, that we want to lift the veil mm. of secrecy that boards of elections sometimes have. Um, and we try to be very proactive in the way of mm-hmm. how we are trying to get this data out to campaigns, to people. 
And we have a very innovative ways of posting data for campaigns in Onondaga County that is starting to be replicated throughout the state. But we engage with our campaigns. We have um, a lot of information on our public website, onvote.net. You, mm-hmm. you can get registration information. You can get past voter uh, um, you know, information. But one of the things that we are very proud of is something that we deal with campaigns and parties and media is we have uh, voter history information for the current election Mm. on a separate private password protected site that campaigns can log into during the early voting period and see who's voted. And that's important because that eliminates phone calls to people who have already voted. It allows them to focus on people who haven't already voted Mm -hmm. and and hopefully increase turnout on whatever side you, you are on. But also it gives a confidence to the campaigns that nothing is being hidden from them, mm. that, that everything is happening in plain sight. And for example, we had a little bit of a snafu this last election. We had uh, three days of early voting data that we found in our post-election certification that were not properly recorded. Okay. Uh, in fact, we got zero votes out of those three days from three different sites. And when we were able to go to the campaigns and tell them what happened and tell them that we had to rescan all of our early voting ballots mm-hmm. because we've been so intentionally um, uh, transparent throughout the entire process, they understood that this was not something that was just being done because one side would benefit or another. Mm-hmm. It was being done because a true mistake had happened and our post-election certification caught that mistake by design. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was machine error at the, inspector level that, uh, you know, had this happen and we were able to, to work with them. So, you know, our transparency is all about mm. making sure that when things like that happen, that people have a assurity of results mm-hmm. that they know that they're not going to question the validity of an election. Mm-hmm. And then of course, the other side, I have a philosophy of trying to be as open to the media as possible. Uh, and that's not just for the glorification of Dustin Zarni. The reason I do that is because then I know that the right information is getting out there. Mm -hmm. And when I took this job, I had never done media before. As I said, I went to GOTV campaigns. I had never really, you know, had um, situations where I talked to the media. And now, especially through the pandemic. Oh, yeah. um, I talked to the media. I, I probably, you know, I was in everybody's living room trying to figure out how we're going to go forward with the 2020 election. And, you know, my counterpart has, you know, did a little bit as well, but I tend to do a little bit more of that. And, you know, and I used to go to community groups, but during the pandemic, I had to do more things like, you know, because I couldn't go to community groups. So I yeah. started my own podcast. I, 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 I increased my presence on a Facebook, on a Facebook page I had created on a lark a few years ago, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and try to just make sure I can get information out there to people. Because, again, information about voting should be, even though we're partisan, you know, how to vote, where to vote, you know, what are the laws, that should be nonpartisan. And I do have advocacy work that I I do and how I want the laws to change. Um, And, uh, you know, I'll continue that as well. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that just stood out to me from what you just shared was your focus on education and information, not only for voters, but also for campaigns. I think that there is 
perhaps an assumption that, well, if you're a campaign and you're in this, you know what the laws are and you know, and that's not always the case. I, in my own research, I remember coming across a case in Wisconsin, I think in 2008, when the McCain campaign had made an honest error on the mail ballot applications that they had sent out to their their likely supporters. And of course, the Democratic campaign pounced all over it. And it was truly an honest mistake. First of all, why would you punish the voters for by rejecting those applications? But it was just so interesting. It was a really eye-opening moment of how, you know, there are folks who are in this in the political sense, they're running for office, but there's education that's needed there as well. That's such a fascinating perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, campaigns are 90% of the time run by volunteers or yeah. very low-paid um, people. And, and, and the people who are staffers on campaigns tend to be younger um, because they get to move around. They, can, they have that uh, sure. ability to drop a job to go to another job with no benefits and, uh, you know, and, and work 80 hours a week for subsistence wages because mm-hmm. you're in it for a cause, you know, yeah. and, or you're in it to build a resume. And they're moving, you know, especially like on congressional campaigns, they're moving from state to state sometimes. And, and so new states, every, you know, I think we're starting to learn that every state has different laws. Oh, and, yeah. And, and, and states run elections and they determine things like absentee ballot access and mm-hmm. all of that. And, and so, yeah, I mean, again, our bipartisan model, I think, helps with dealing with campaigns because every campaign knows they have their person at the board Mm -hmm. that they can go to for questions and not have to worry about, you know, the other side getting that information, even though there's no secret. Every question you're asking is the same thing that the other people are asking. You're not going to get a leg up on any, anything here at the board, but everybody thinks they will. So that being said, campaigns need even more education than a voter because it's pretty simple to fill out a ballot and once you get to the point where you're knowing where to go, you know, and, yeah. and what the times are, then, you know, and, and, and voters actually have election inspectors there that, that should help them with any questions that they have. Campaigns many times are flying in the, in the dark. Mm. And they, that thing, like you said, with the McCain thing, you know, with absentee ballots, that's the kind of stuff that campaigns can get tripped up on. Yeah. The time. And there's so many times where I see something on social media that a campaign sharing that's not true. And I, but having an outreach to the campaign allows me to do that, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that's not coming down on them in a public way where I can kind of say to them, Hey, look, you're giving out wrong information, get it down, give the right information out, issue a correction and, and nip it in the butt before voters are punished for it yeah and that, and that and, kind of leads to my uh, you know my reform policy is that anything that is out there that can keep a voter from being having their vote counted that is usually something that i like to target with mm-hmm. election you know reform litigation uh suggestions mm-hmm. and try you know why should we have to request absentees? Mm-hmm. Why can't, why should you have to have an excuse? Although in New York, we just had a big setback on that. I know. Changing the Constitution in New York is a very arduous process. It takes years. And uh, in 2018, the Democrats took over control of the New York State Senate. And uh, they were able in 2019 to 
implement early voting and other reforms, which were great. But one of the reforms that we wanted to implement was no-fault absentee. Mm -hmm. In in New York, we are an in-person voting state, always have been, and very few people vote by absentee. You have to have an excuse. But because you can't change a constitutional amendment right away, it's a three-year process. So the earliest they could do it was in 2021. Now, during 2020, during the pandemic, we had a governor executive order Mm -hmm. that added the pandemic excuse to the temporarily ill section of the absentees. And nobody really challenged that in court because, I mean, you know, we were in weird times. It still are. But everybody thought that in 2021, we would go to no-fault absentees because it would be on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And usually questions like this that are on the ballot are passed by the voters in overwhelming numbers. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the election season... All of a sudden, there was a lot, $3 million, I believe, was spent by conservative groups across the the state to vote no on several different prompts, including the no-fault absentee prompt. That combined with historic low turnout, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we had the lowest turnout in six years here in Onondaga County, but all throughout the state. And New York City, I believe, was which drives a lot of statewide props had the lowest turnout that they've had in 50 years. Mm. And so there was more momentum on the no side. And this went down by quite a lot of votes. And I think we're going to see over the next year or so people very confused about this because they've been used to being able to vote by absentee. And now they're not going to be able to, you know, but there is talk about putting it back on the ballot, putting it on, but it won't be on until 2024. So yep. Until 2025, this is a a, a huge tool that would have been transformative of New York elections, Mm -hmm. made it easier for so many people that are homebound and uh, to vote. And um, that's not going to happen now. And and that's a big consequence of, um, you know, of a uh, and and the state, (laughs) the state Democratic Party is big egg, egg on their face here because they did not do any voter education on what this meant. They okay. didn't go out there and push for it. They allowed the conservatives to own the airwaves. And um, and, and the, I, I think there's a lot of lessons learned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, but we're, we're going to have until at least 2025 with a continuing with an excuse-based absentee system in New York. Yeah, I, I think that this is a great uh, point to transition to a couple of final wrap-up questions. I'm wondering if you could maybe zoom out for us and offer some perspective you have on the biggest challenges that election officials like you are facing right now, but also sort of American democracy more broadly. And I asked that question as a follow-up to your comment about the conservative push to vote this issue down, because you know what I'm observing revolves a lot around the rhetoric and the the messaging that's out there about these issues. And I'm wondering what your perspective looks like in terms of how those shape the challenges that we're navigating and, yeah, the differences between something like that versus an honest mistake a campaign makes in posting information on a Twitter account. We looked on in horror on January 6th about what happened. Yeah. We thought happened in our country, even though there were tons of warning signals in place. And even somebody as progressive as myself and as um, 
as uh, alarmed by some of the, the messaging out there in the right wing uh, sphere. Mm-hmm. I never thought like what we'd see happen on January 6th would actually happen. I thought, oh, they'd get rowdy. They'd maybe chant outside the building, but they wouldn't try to push past police and actually storm the Capitol to stop mm-hmm. the democratic process. And unfortunately, I don't believe that this is a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. And this is what keeps me up at night. Our local boards going to be targeted now? Mm-hmm. Is the is the are, are we are polling places going to be um, under threat? Maybe not under physical threat, but maybe under more intense um, you know, electioneering that, you know, or 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 things like what happened with this no-fault absentee, where you see more messaging around, uh, and, and mis- it, it, there was misinformation out there oh, as yeah. well. You know, it was not, it wasn't like, oh, just vote no on three, and here's our fl- fl- political philosophy. They they lied about who would be able to get ballots. They lied about voter fraud. Again, all of this leads back to the assurity of results mm-hmm. that elections boards have for generations now been able to give and and people believe and move on to the next election. Mm -hmm. We are in an undiscovered country now with this because we are not going to be able to know that when election results are given, that it's going to be accepted. Yeah. I had a lot of candidates lose in November. They all accepted it, you Mm -hmm. know, and I was happy that they did. And it's not just a right-wing thing. There were a lot of left-wing fringe candidates in 2016 that were questioning voter hacking and and, and, Mm -hmm. and election hacking of the physical machines instead of what was actually happening, which was the hacking of social media and messaging, you know. But but that, that pales in comparison to what, is happening right now on, on the on the right, and, yeah. Um, and and we see election officials leaving their jobs in droves. I know, or, you know, right now, and these are the people we need. You know, we need good election officials that are willing to stick it out. And it's hard, you know, yeah. it's hard when your your home addresses are published. It's hard when you're you're kind of a public official yourself. The the putting down our arms, so to speak. And after the election day and then focusing on the next election, mm-hmm. that is what I wish we could get back to in this country. And understanding that there's an election two to four years away for that same position, time will move on. That that electing a Democrat is not, even electing a Republican is not a, a thing that will end your life as you know it. But that being said, we need to have a better discussion about democracy issues during the campaigns and understand where people are. And we, on all sides of the aisle, need to focus on electing people that are pro-democracy. Yes. Not not just pro our party, but pro-democracy. Yes. And we'll we'll recalibrate American politics. Yeah. And And that needs to happen. We can't walk away from what is actually happening on the ground. Right? Yeah. I mean, we want we want to have pro-democracy. I couldn't look you in the eye and say that both sides are having this issue. It's really, right now, it's one side. And it's not just the people who actually believe the wild conspiracies. It's the people who are afraid of the people who believe the wild conspiracies and not willing to stand up to yeah. them. And now we've reached a tilting point where 
I don't know the next time in 2024, five, when uh, we have the electors meet again, if a Democratic president is elected, but there is a Republican Congress, are they going to accept the electors? Yeah. And all of these things that are out there with states being able to send competing electors and legislators being able to overturn the will of the people. And I already have a big problem with the Electoral College to begin with. Uh, I don't think you're alone in that. No, I think you're in your company. No, not even the Electoral College will be respected. I, I did want to ask, and you know, no, no pressure to respond, but have you personally navigated the kinds of threats that local election officials seem to be experiencing across the country? You're talking about addresses being posted and doxing and online threats. Um, is that anything that you've had to navigate in your position? Not, not as bad as other uh, mm-hmm. places. Uh, the most I've had to deal with is uh, uh, online social media bullying. Yeah. I'm a big boy. I can take that. You know, you know, I, mm. I, that's fine. I, I tend to be the only male figure in, in the office mm-hmm. right now and that shouldn't matter, but it does matter to some people at the counter that are screaming and yelling and usually I tend to, uh, my office happens to be pretty close to the counter. Okay. <laughs> and so when that situation happens, I tend to engage uh, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And usually it calms them down. But we've had to install security cameras and, you know, all kinds of different things that we didn't have mm. before because of this rising temperature that we've seen over the last five years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've had several in- incidents of people having to be escorted out. Uh, I would love to circle back around to the question that's at the heart of the podcast, what voting means to you. And really that's a what democracy means to you, but sort of what is that act at the core of American democracy mean to you and, and how has it shaped your life? I've kind of come on a philosophy and it's really going through this tumultuous time that has really crystallized it for me that every vote symbolizes a hope. And that's why it's so important, because it's the person who's making that vote. They're not just making a selection in an oval on a on a piece of paper that symbolizes the direction that they want their neighborhood, their state, their county, their 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 country to go in. And so it it represents their best hopes. Mm. Sometimes it also represents their fears. Uh, you know, if you're against what they're afraid of losing, but also what they hope that they're gaining by casting that vote. That's why I feel it's important to respect every vote, even if I disagree with it, because it is somebody's hope. And if we look at it that way, maybe we can start taking the gamesmanship out mm-hmm. of politics. You know, let's give this neighborhood better access to the polling place or because they tend to vote our way or let's give, uh, you know, let's not make special accommodations for a, you know, a a minority uh, uh, neighborhood who have higher stresses and can't get to the polling place, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, let's not make that accommodation. No, we should always do everything we can to make it easier to vote because then we make it easier for people's hopes to be realized. Mm. And that, is our democracy. That is why we do it. And that is why I do it. And that is why it's worked so well, even as imperfect as it has been (laughs) for the last uh, several, you know, 200 years. And hopefully 
it will continue to get more perfect. We will never reach perfect and we will have more hopes realized mm-hmm. than fears. Oh, well, you're bringing tears to my eyes because <laughs> I could not think of a better way to, to conclude our conversation. I love the idea of thinking about, I mean, I love that you visualized the act of marking a ballot and sort of thinking about what that represents as this idea of someone's hope and what a precious thing. And that is something that should not be the subject of, of gamesmanship, as you say. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. Well, that is all I've got. Thank you so Thank much. You that was such a, a beautiful way to conclude. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? I think it's just, uh, you know, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get involved. Yeah. Go to getting involved in a campaign. Become an election inspector. Please help us get to the next um, phase of our democracy and go out there and, uh, and, and make it easier for uh, someone to vote tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Call to action.